Psalm 29. A Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the grass withers, and the flowers fail. We had some early adopters out there. I appreciate that, though. Rob Heide, I particularly heard you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he took the rebuke quite well, you know, as all of you did. Our New Testament lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 8. We do begin a new series for the fall in which we'll be working through the gospel of Luke particularly focusing on the parables of Jesus. We are not going to hit exactly all of them just because of the way the weeks fall out, but uh, there are only one or two that we, uh, that we had to omit. Today we are reading verses 4 through 15, and this is the classic parable of Jesus, the parable of the sower. Luke chapter 8. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. 
Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help with understanding that you may give us minds as we inquire into the seed and the secret of the kingdom, that you would guide us in understanding the teachings of our Lord Jesus. We ask you to speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, a friend called me with a vague invitation. He invited me, along with several of my closest peers, to travel to Montana. It was going to be a long weekend spent with a Christian author and pastor. His name was Eugene Peterson. The only thing that I needed to cover was my plane ticket to get to Montana. Phones and emails begin to erupt. How did this benevolence befall us? How were we going to get the chance to spend time with Eugene Peterson? Because like him or not, he is controversial in certain ways, but he's always thoughtful. And the chance to sit down with a seasoned and aged pastor who has thought long and hard about his vocation was extremely enticing. And it was a weekend away in Montana. What could go wrong with this? At the end of the email, it also said, it's going to be a weekend in October. I'll let you know the specifics. A couple of days later, the email arrived. I had checked my calendar for October of that year, and I had one commitment. I had made it an entire year before. It was October 5th. I'll never forget. I had a wedding on October 5th, and the email came in, and it said, we are going to travel to Montana on October 3rd and return on October 6th. I sent emails in a fury. Can't, we, can't this be later in October? <laughs> can't you change your wedding? No, can't this be in October? And so my friends had the chance uh, to journey to Montana to spend days hiking through the mountains and also two extended conversations with Eugene Peterson. It was a fascinating time. I've gotten to relive the event since I did miss it, um, joyfully celebrating the wedding, I'm sure. And, but listening to the conversations that they had, questions they were able to ask. Everyone had had about a decade of experience in pastoral ministry, and so there were lots of questions coming up. And Peterson answered every one of the questions in a unique way. He would listen, and then he would tell a story from his own pastoral experience. When it started, they didn't quite know where it was going. It sounded like the ramblings of an old man, I suppose. But then there would come a certain point where he would twist it and turn it and apply it. And suddenly that story that they had felt comfortable with became extremely uncomfortable. That he was dissecting the motives behind the question. And he was addressing them as a group of young pastors very skillfully and very artfully. And he was taking their questions and answering them. He was disorienting them, and he was giving them a new platform on which to build. 
And friends, this is the art of good teaching. It's also the art of our Lord Jesus. And when we look at Jesus' parables, this is what he does. He starts with apparently benign stories about very common and ordinary things. Things like fathers and sons and crops. He tells stories that everyone is comfortable with. But then he twists it. Because, see, it's very important to understand that these were not ancient versions of Reader's Digest stories. People normally didn't walk away weepy-eyed after hearing Jesus' parables. Rather, these parables have a twist in them that often come with a sting in which Jesus is offering to reorient our world in the way that we think and the way that we approach God. And he does it in very creative and life-giving ways. And that in his words, we hear the very voice of God, that he specifically addresses us. And so the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks in Luke 8, and he is speaking into a context in which he has begun his public ministry. He has raised a widow's son from the dead. He has healed a paralytic man. He has allowed the mute to speak. Jesus has done some phenomenal things, and now around him there is a great crowd that's forming. They are wanting to listen to him as he preaches about the reign of God coming to earth. This is what he is doing. And he tells a story, a parable, about now how he was being received. See, there were dynamics unfolding. Some were listening to him with great interest. And some were already plotting his death and his demise. And Jesus tells the parable of the sower to help us understand the dynamics that play out when the word of God, the creative, powerful, meaningful self-expression of God that comes through his word, when the word of God is proclaimed, what happens? And this is what Jesus gives us. And so the parable is brief. It's to the point. Verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And so the question for us this morning is, what does Jesus exactly want to impress on us? What is the twist in the story, the point that Jesus is striving to make? And there's two things here, two primary points that Jesus is emphasizing. And the first is that we'll see it's a word about revelation, about God's condescension to us. And the second, it's a word about our response to that revelation. First, revelation. The disciples had to ask Jesus what these things meant. You find this in verse 9, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, they were confused. It seemed opaque and vague. They didn't know what was going on. And Jesus then sits to explain it very clearly. And this is what verses 9 through 15 do, is they explain exactly what the very short, concise parable he spoke means. Verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed 
is the word of God. He explains exactly what it is. A sower went forth to sow seed, Jesus himself being the sower, and the seed is the word of God. The word of God is the powerful, meaningful self-expression of God in which God is announcing his plans to save the world. It's revealed to us in the content in the Bible. But this is the plan of God to renew all things. And Jesus makes the very provocative claim that in him, God speaks, disclosing his plan to save the world. Jesus is saying that he is the sower and he is liberally sowing, announcing God's great plan to renew his creation and make all things right through him. There were many people who never would have thought that was possible. Who was this arrogant Jew from Nazareth to say such a thing? Why could he make such an exclusive claim? And today, we tend to be allergic to statements like this as well. That such exclusive statements of someone saying that in him God speaks, disclosing God's one plan to renew God's world. We don't like strong statements like that. Many people are okay with Jesus. They are okay with his plan, but they get very uncomfortable when you begin to speak that Jesus reveals the plan of God to renew all things. The way that we tend to think about God is we think about it like driving downtown. The other day, Melissa and I got into the car to go to Baptist Hospital downtown, and we had to make a decision. Many of you make this decision on a regular basis. How am I going to get there? And what you're very aware of is that there are many different routes to get to downtown. From our house, we can slip out Racetrack Road and hook around on 295 and make some meandering route there. It's not very efficient, but you can get there. At certain times of day, you avoid more traffic. You can also go up the gut, up 95, and you can get there. You can swing around to the west on 295 and go that way. If you want the scenic route and perhaps a good place to eat, you can come up San Jose and go through San Marco, and that way can get you to downtown. There are some other routes that I wouldn't recommend, but the bottom line is that there are many ways to get to downtown. And this is how we tend to relate to the knowledge of God today, is that we say, no, experientially we know that, yes, your way may be fine, but there are many ways. There are many ways to arrive there. And so in our modern mindset, we think that we can transcend up into the knowledge of God, that we can have this bird's eye view on what it means to relate to God. And Jesus is saying something profoundly different. He says, no, a sower goes out to sow, that God condescends to us, and that God must reveal to us what it means to know him and how we can know him. That God must reveal to us the seed of the kingdom, that he must spread the, ki- the seed of the kingdom and the, and the seed must take plant. That God must reveal himself to us, that we can't rise ourselves up to the knowledge of God and figure him out in our own capabilities. Jesus is saying, no, it's the divine act of grace that God condescends to us, that God speaks to us. And that he reveals what it is that God is doing to save the world. 
And so we're dependent on this. And friends, this is why in our service of worship, when we read the Word of God, we respond. Rib Heide had the right instinct to jump on out there and say, the Word of God stands forever. That's right. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Because it is announcing all that we believe that the Bible is, that it's breathed out by God, that it's his word and his revelation, it's his condescension to tell us what his kingdom is like and how we can enter into it and who he is and what it's like to know him, that God has acted in a miraculous way, speaking to us. And this is what we learn in the parable of the sower, that a sower goes forth sowing seed. That seed is the word of God. Jesus is the sower of that seed. Second thing that we see, though, is not only a word about revelation, but the parable primarily then concerns itself with our response to that revelation. That the revelation is given, that it's set, it's fixed. But then, because it is the creative and powerful word of God, there will be response. We see four different kinds of response to the one word of God. Jesus interprets each of those responses in Luke 8 for the disciples. He begins by saying that the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Easy enough to understand. The seed landed on the hard path where nothing would bear fruit. The ground was hard. There was not enough water. Nothing would grow there. It's easy for us to understand that, yes, the word of God sometimes is sown, that it's spoken to a hardened heart who has no interest. And then we also have the fourth soil that was productive, where there was an abundant harvest, a hundredfold harvest. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 15. As for that in the good soil, there are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is easy enough for us to understand as well. That the word of God finds receptivity. People ready to hear, eager to receive it, to give thanks for it, to believe in Jesus and trust him and the plan that God is revealing through him. That this is also easy for us to understand. But there's a whole other matter in this parable. There is that soil on the rock, and then there is that soil amongst the thorns, where the same word of God is sown. And what we find there is more challenging. What exactly is taking place there? What is the second and third soil and it's troubling to many of us. We want to understand what exactly is being said. What do we do with this? And the primary pastoral question that arises out of it is how do we know the difference between seed planted on the rocky ground among the thorns and into the good soil? How do I know if my heart is more rocky or good? It's the very practical question. And at planting, for a great deal of time, when we look at the parable, there doesn't seem to be a discernible difference, especially between the third soil and the fourth soil. Listen to how Jesus describes it again. And as for that, what fell among the thorns, 
They are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. As they go on their way. This was not immediate. It was something that took place later on down the line. What makes the difference between that third soil and then the fourth soil where there is an honest and good heart and an abundant harvest? Because some seed fails to come to maturity. And some seed bears an abundant harvest. What exactly is the difference? And friends, this is worked out over time. It's worked out over time, not in a way that we earn anything from God. But what Jesus is explaining is that authentic faith, real faith, is persevering, fruit-bearing faith. Look at what he says again. As for those... As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The bearing fruit with patience does not secure our position with God. It is evidential of that position. It bears it out that we have that position, that we're in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus, and that the fruits of the word in us are evidentiary of that relationship. This is what Jesus is explaining. And that yes, the third soil where the seed is planted, or the second soil on the rock where the seed is planted and something springs up, that there is some kind of response, some kind of desire, but ultimately not a true and lively faith, not an authentic faith that responds to God's grace. This raises very practical questions for people. Many people will then ask, so what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to go around living with a personal anxiety, asking ourselves constantly whether we are seed that's been planted in the third soil or the fourth soil? Some people with tender consciences ask that. Others who are wired slightly different, will say, well, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to walk around and judge other people's faith, evaluating their fruits and seeing if they're ripe enough to see if they're really in or not? And friends, that's not the primary role of the church. The church continues in the sowing of the seed. We persist in Jesus' ministry, revealing the word of God, Announcing that word that has been given to us. We go forth sowing seed. And we recognize that there will be many different responses. There will be those who simply dismiss it. There will be those who grasp on and latch on in an honest and good heart and believe it. And then there will also be that middle ground that's very difficult to discern. And what do we do with it? The role of the church at the beginning is to give a judgment of charity to those who profess faith in Jesus. That we believe that God places that confession of faith on the lips of the believer. And so we receive that with charity. And then we anticipate that there will be fruits in keeping with that profession. And that yes, every believer will go through challenges and there will be difficulties. But the one distinguishing mark of the Christian is the repentant, continued following after Jesus even after failure. 
But what happens to the seed planted in the third soil is very clear. Jesus says that they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. They may well know their doctrine. They may well believe that Jesus speaks the word of God. But what happens is that other things, the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life, become more important. They gain ascendancy in the heart. See, it's not just a matter of what you believe. It's ultimately what you love. And what you love is where your heart really is. And this is where what you really value. And the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life can capture all of us and become quite intoxicating. And it can eclipse our entire spiritual life. And Jesus says it's a great danger because when we live there, we move into an unrepentant posture. We actually don't think anything is wrong. Paul dealt with this situation quite a lot in the New Testament, and you find how he worked this out pastorally. If you've ever read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they're fascinating. It is, uh, it'll make you feel good about church life if you've ever been in a church that has challenges. <laughs> Corinth was a debaucherous place, and the church reflected that in its culture. He lists off a long list of vices and sins, and he says, Such were some of you, but you've now been saved and redeemed by the grace of God. And yet they still had ongoing problems. And he's working with them to draw them into repentance over these two long letters, over things where they were compromised in the culture. Paul's very concerned about them. And there were some hefty charges. People were sleeping together who shouldn't have been sleeping together. People were arrogant and boastful about their sin and extremely unrepentant. He approached these things several times. And I want you to note what he does at the end of 2 Corinthians, though. It's fascinating. Chapter 13. Verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And friends, this is the pastoral working out of the third soil and the, first, and the fourth soil. Paul calls people after a period and seasoned of unrepentant living to test and examine themselves to see if they're actually in the faith. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? He still takes that as his primary presupposition. That's his judgment of charity. That these people have professed faith in Jesus and that they belong to him. That Christ is in them. But he recognizes that he may not be. That they may not have authentic faith. Because no one loses their salvation. But he knows that there are those who have the appearance of faith. An inauthentic faith that, that shows itself. And so he calls them to examine themselves. And friends, this is the pastoral method of the Bible itself. That we give the judgment of charity to all who profess faith. 
And then as a church, we seek to cultivate that and grow that. And so we expose ourselves to the teaching of the Word of God and to relationships that will encourage these things. To brothers and sisters who will call us away from the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. Not to seek after those and to be eclipsed by those, but to give ourselves fully to following after God and knowing Him. That's what a spiritual community does. And when we see someone falling into the traps of the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, we also speak to them and say we are concerned. Because we want an honest and good heart that receives the Word of God, the creative and powerful Word of God that will then bear fruit in our lives as we live in repentance and faith. Now, for some, undoubtedly, this will create a bit of anxiety. That need not be the case. That's not what we're after here. Because the same Word of God that can create that anxiety also speaks a strong word of affirmation. It's a word of affirmation to those who bear fruit, who bear fruit with perseverance, This doesn't mean that the person is always bearing fruit and just perfect and gets everything right, but it is a bearing of fruit with repentance over time, the trajectory of our lives, which way are we pointed and headed. It's from an honest and good heart, and it is that word of God that comes to affirm us and assure us. That assurance is something that grows and matures and develops as we gain momentum through the Christian life, as we know this God and we know His ways and we know His commitment to us in Jesus, we recognize that we're secure, that nothing can take that away, that God has commanded that we are in Christ and therefore we're safe and secure and that the fruits of repentance will be welling up within us because of God's powerful Word that's alive in our hearts. Because, friends, the ultimate ground of assurance is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus preached, and he was rejected in his own lifetime. There were those who were of that first soil who wanted nothing to do with him. They rejected the word of God. They wanted nothing to do with God's saving plan that was being brought to fruition in Jesus. They found him unoppressive and a singular failure. The most provocative thing about God's word is that even when it's rejected, it accomplishes its good purpose. Isaiah says so much in chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, that even in rejection, the word of God accomplishes its purposes. Remember what Luke 8, what Jesus says as he begins his interpretation of the parable. He says, to you it has been granted to know the secrets of the kingdom. The secret of the kingdom was what was going to unfold in Jesus' life. The way that God's kingdom was going to come to bear on the earth. And the manner that that kingdom came to bear was through Jesus' rejection. Remember, Jesus establishes God's kingship through his own death and resurrection. So yes, the word of God was rejected by some. And because it was rejected, the kingship of God is established. Jesus goes down into death and then he rises from the dead. 
destroying the power of death, destroying the power of Satan, establishing the rule of God over all the ends of the earth. It's what happens. The Word of God accomplishes its good purpose. It accomplished its good purpose in the life of Jesus. He was rejected, but he was accepted by God. And by faith in that Jesus, we are accepted too. We're affirmed. And an honest and good heart belongs to us. That God gives us that as well. To believe in his Son and to hold fast to him. And then because of our union with him and his word alive in us, we bear fruit. It's his work, not our own. And friends, that's the secret of the kingdom. That's the way of God in our world. Jesus spoke in a parable in order to make it plain to us, to help us understand. And so let's pray for grace that those fruits would continue to abound in our own lives. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for your word. As we read in Psalm 29, it's a powerful and creative word that your voice thunders across the heavens, that you uphold all of creation by the power of your speech. And that same powerful speech is what we hear in Jesus' words today as he speaks of a sower going forth to sow seed. And Lord, we ask that you would bear with us in all of our struggles and our weakness and that by your spirit we would bear fruit with patience, that authentic faith would live in us as we entrust ourselves to Jesus. Keep us from all anxiety. May we belong to him, trusting that the secret of the kingdom has been made known to us, that you have revealed your reign through his death and resurrection. May our faith belong to those great events. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.